Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. This week, we want to replay a special story that we originally broadcast on September 10, 2018. The story was about the Cure Violence program, which was initiated here in Louisville a year or two ago to reduce street violence, especially to reduce shootings. I want to replay the story because the Cure Violence program is now under threat of being diminished due to the cutbacks in the Louisville Metro budget that Mayor Fisher's office is currently proposing. Well, you might have already heard of the No More Red Dots organization that's been operating in Louisville for like 30 years. Dr. Eddie Woods, the longtime head of No More Red Dots, says that the name refers to the street maps that the police use to keep track of homicides in the city. Every red dot denotes a murder. Eddie Woods' approach is to train people as violence interrupters, to interact with the people in the community who are most likely going to be tempted to commit violence. These interrupters try to discourage future acts of violence, as well as preventing violence that has already occurred from escalating even further, like revenge violence. Well, starting a year or two ago, the No More Red Dots movement joined forces with Louisville Metro to do even more to reduce violent crime in the city. The national program called Cure Violence has been officially adopted by Louisville, and the city government has already contributed something like $1.9 million to work with Dr. Woods of No More Red Dots and his team of interrupters to try to reduce the spread of violence in our community. The Cure Violence approach was first initiated by a professor of epidemiology and global health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Now, epidemiologists study the spread of infectious diseases, and the approach that Cure Violence takes is to use the methods and strategies that are used to control the spread of a contagious disease and apply it to this situation. Listen to our story and you'll hear how that works. But first, a little background. Now, as you know, violence is a big problem here in Louisville. In 2016, there were 116 homicides. That number dropped by nine in 2017 to beat 107 murders. These are the highest rates of homicide in Louisville since 2007-2008. The number of homicides last year, 2018, was 76. That's a 32% drop in murders last year. So does that mean that the Cure Violence Program is working? Well, I hope so. I checked the Louisville Police Department database this week and see that so far for 2019, there have been 20 homicides in Louisville Metro. The city is predicting that the final number will be about 89 murders this year, which would be an increase from the 76 we saw last year, but still lower than the 110 or so murders we saw the previous two years. Mayor Greg Fisher recently released his spending plan for next year, and it's brimming with cuts in city jobs and programs. But the final city budget for 2020 is not going to be actually approved by the city council until late June, which is why I wanted to bring this up now. Fisher's current budget contains a $9.6 million cut to public safety programs, 
which includes the money for hiring no more red dots to take the cure violence approach to the streets. The current plan is to eliminate one of the four cure violence sites in the city. The site they want to eliminate is on 26th Street in West Louisville, and closing this site would save the city $446,000. According to the Louisville Courier-Journal, April 26, 2019, some of the activities at this site include mentoring and tutoring for, quote, at-risk and gang-involved youth, unquote. And even Fisher's budget proposal states that this cut will, quote, likely lead to a higher crime rate, unquote. Now, the cure violence approach has already been successfully applied in numerous cities around the world. In this September 10th story I'm going to play for you right now, we reviewed an assessment of the Cure Violence program that was being carried out in New York City. Well, here's that original story. Here's some data you need to know. Last year in Louisville, there were 107 people murdered. 107 men, women, and children were murdered in Louisville last year. Not only is that an amazing figure, but it's also just unacceptable. What's even worse than the 107 murders in 2017 in Louisville were the number of murders the year before, 2016. It was 116 murders then. I thought it was pretty pathetic when Mayor Fisher and the Louisville police chief bragged about the drop in murders from 2016 to 2017. It dropped from 116 to 107. The numbers from both of those years are outrageous, unacceptable, and should shock all of us. In 2017, Louisville, Kentucky was ranked the 11th deadliest city in the United States, and Louisville, Kentucky is the 9th fastest rising violent city in the country, number 9. So far, as of July 2018, there's been 43 murders in Louisville, Kentucky. Although those are better statistics than the last couple years, it still looks like a bad year. I want to tell you about a report that was published by John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City in October of 2017. These researchers published an update on an anti-violence program that had been initiated in New York City in 2010. This John Jay College report was written by a group of researchers who had expertise in criminal justice and urban studies. The title of the report is Denormalizing Violence, and it basically evaluates the effectiveness of this anti-violence program that was undertaken in two places, South Bronx and Brooklyn. The program was called Cure Violence. The reason this report is important is because here in Louisville, Kentucky, our mayor, Greg Fisher, is currently seeking to insert $1.9 million into the 2018-2019 Louisville Metro budget to establish a cure violence program here in Louisville. So let's take a look at how this program worked in New York City so we have a better idea of what to expect here in Kentucky. The cure violence program started in New York City back in 2010 with funding from the U.S. Department of Justice There are actually 18 different cure violence programs within New York City, but this John Jay College report focused on only two of them. One of them was called Man Up in Brooklyn, and the other one was called Save Our Streets in South Bronx. The researchers compared what happened in these two neighborhoods with what happened in nearby neighborhoods that did not have these cure violence programs. 
For the non-experimental controls, they chose East Harlem and Flatbush for comparison. This report uses data gathered between the years 2012 and 2016. Keep in mind that the program started in 2010, so they waited a couple years for the program to get going and then evaluated it for a four-year period. First, I'll describe the Man Up program in East New York, Brooklyn. Most of the staff members in this program were middle-aged men who actually lived in the neighborhood they were working in. About half of the staff had belonged to a street gang or crew in the past or had been incarcerated in the past and the majority of the staff had been involved in community work or activism in the past. So these staff members in the Man Up program in, in, in Brooklyn spent a lot of time just walking the streets, interacting with neighbors, keeping up with street lore, and any emerging rumors about the possibility of future violence. On average, these staff members were spending 48 hours a month, so two or three hours per day, just walking around the streets. It was determined that about 80% of the males between the ages of 18 and 30 in East New York, where Brooklyn is, 80% of them recognized at least one member of Man Up. And of the young men in the neighborhood who did have contact with Man Up staff members, they had on average 4.5 contacts per month, so pretty frequent contact. The program in South Bronx, similar to this, was called Save Our Streets, and the Save Our Streets program had a similar makeup as the Man Up program. Now both of these programs were small parts of a larger program called Cure Violence, and that's the program that the John Jay College researchers are investigating. Cure Violence was founded by a former official in the World Health Organization. This was back in 1995. This person was named Dr. Gary Slutkin. And Dr. Slutkin was a professor of epidemiology and global health at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So the approach that Dr. Slutkin took was to use the same methods and strategies that are used to control the spread of disease. After all, Slutkin was an epidemiologist. Cure violence is based on the idea that violence acts like a contagious disease. It spreads from person to person as people adopt the behaviors that they observe in family members and friends and peers. The Cure Violence program works by detecting and interrupting conflicts, by identifying and treating the highest risk individuals, and by changing social norms. Here's the path that Cure Violence takes, and I'm quoting here. First step, assess the violence problem and, and the community. So this would involve identifying situations that are likely to result in violent acts, like revenge due to a prior shooting. It would be looking to group conflicts and territory disputes and formation of new groups and major arrests, anniversaries of shootings, release of key individuals from incarceration, and ongoing conflicts. The second step for the Cure Violence program is to engage community leaders. Third, identify appropriate community partners. Four, identify appropriate hospital response partners so that program staff can counsel injured patients as well as their family and friends who may be planning to retaliate for a violent event. Fifth, they re-examine their data. Sixth, they hire and train credible workers who can mediate conflicts using the following techniques. Creating cognitive dissonance about violence. So the way they do that is by challenging people with new information or attitudes that contradict their held beliefs and values. 
Another technique they use is called derailing. Derailing is a psychological technique where there's a sudden and unexpected change of topic in a normal conversation. So it kind of breaks lo the logical flow of a speech. The idea of that is to basically change the train of thought of a person. Some other techniques that these staff members will use is changing the way people think about situations, changing the decision that people make, providing information, buying time, negotiating a compromise. So the average caseworker in cure violence has 10 or 12 people that they are most focused on. It would be those people who are at highest risk of committing violence, and they meet with them several times a week and develop a relationship with them. Another important thing that these trained cure violence workers will do is to provide technical assistance to community members. So staff members help participants with issues like getting education, jobs, criminal justice issues, mental health problems, problems with alcohol, drugs, trauma, re-entry from incarceration, things like that. So that's a brief description of the Cure Violence program that's being used in New York City. How did they assess this program? Well, here's the kind of things they measured. First of all, how many shootings were there every month? How many gun injuries were there that required medical attention? And this is different than the number of shootings because one shooting could hurt many, many people. They also evaluated the success of this program by just talking to young people who are between the ages of 18 and 30 and just asking them about the likelihood of them using violence either in petty conflicts like with a romantic partner as well as serious disputes like with family, about money or debt, acts of disrespect, things like that. In other words, how did the Cure Violence program change people's attitudes about violence? So in the three-year period of this study, that was 2014, 2015, 2016, gun violence trended downward in both of these cure violence neighborhoods that they studied. Violence also went down in the experimental control neighborhoods, though, where the cure violence program was not applied, but violence there didn't drop as much as in the neighborhoods that did have that program. In East New York, where Brooklyn is, the Brooklyn neighborhood, the gun injury rates fell by 50%, whereas the matched comparison neighborhood, which was Flatbush, the gun injuries only dropped 5%. So it dropped 50% in the cure violence neighborhood and only 5% in the control. In the South Bronx neighborhood, which was served by the cure violence program, there was a 37% drop in gun injuries whereas there was only a 29% drop in gun injuries in the control neighborhood, which was East Harlem. And while there was a 63% reduction in shooting victimization in the Cure Violence neighborhood of South Bronx, there was only a 17% drop in shooting victimization in East Harlem, which was the control. So in real numbers, this means that gun injuries in the Brooklyn area dropped from 44 per year to 22, and in the Bronx area, it dropped from 35 shootings to 13. That's a pretty big drop in both of these cure violence neighborhoods. So the program seems to be working. And on those surveys of young men where the uh, cure violence staff people asked them about whether they would use violence in petty disputes like with a romantic partner, the number who supported a violent response dropped by 20% during these three-year period. 
then for serious disputes, there was a 33% drop in the reported likelihood of committing violence in those neighborhoods. And that was statistically better than the attitudes in untreated neighborhoods. So the Cure Violence program appears to be working both in terms of people's attitudes about violence and then the actual acts of violence that occur in those neighborhoods. So this particular analysis was only done in New York City, but the Cure Violence model has already been implemented in other places. It's been used in Chicago, Baltimore, San Antonio, New Orleans, Kansas City, Syracuse, and Albany, and maybe in the future Louisville. It's also been implemented internationally, like in Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and South Africa, for instance. It would be interesting to see a larger analysis of the Cure Violence program. What are the success rates in these other locations? Another question I have is, since this research project only covered three years, what sort of results would we see five years or ten years after initiation of this project? The Cure Violence program is getting a lot of recognition in the world. A recent analysis ranked it number 10 for effectiveness in a 2018 report on the 500 top non-governmental organizations in the world. And it's been in the top 20 NGOs in the world for the last five years. So this is a highly regarded program. I'd like to read a quote by Dr. Slutkin. He's the epidemiologist who founded the Cure Violence model. He says, Violence is contagious. It spreads from one person to another. Cure Violence staff work one-on-one -on -one with those most likely to be violent and use their influence to talk them out of it. Communities around the world, Dr. Slutkin says, are understanding that violence is a health issue and that this means we need to implement health approaches. We are working with as many partners and individuals as we can to guide and train them to effectively implement this health approach to preventing violence. That was a quote by Dr. Slutkin. On a side note, I'd like to editorialize a little bit. I, I hope that one of those community partners that Slutkin talks about in that quote I just read you is the local police. Louisville Metro Police, for instance. They don't spend much money on training their officers. Last year, they only spent $210,000 in their training program. That's for the entire police division. That's the salary of a couple people is all it is. The Louisville Metro Police Department cut the probationary period for new officers from 24 weeks down to only 16 weeks. That's a 33% cut at a time when murders are high. And while last year we had four people who were shot by police, this year, 2018, we've already seen five people killed by police. And it's still just the summer of 2018. In my opinion, our police need better training. But I'll get off my soapbox now. As I mentioned in the beginning of this story, Mayor Greg Fisher here in Louisville is looking to establish a cure violence program here in Louisville, specifically targeted to northwest Louisville, like the Shawnee neighborhood and Russell neighborhood has been mentioned. So at least now we know a little bit more about what this cure violence program is all about. Based on the report I read from John Jay College, it does seem to work. Thank you. Measles. Just 19 years ago, 
the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention declared that measles in the United States was eliminated. But this year, we're seeing the highest rates of measles in 25 years. Bench Talk recognized this problem early in the year, and we broadcast a story back on February 18th about measles. We want to rebroadcast this story again because now there are 702 cases of measles showing up in 22 different states this year, and Kentucky is one of these states. Two siblings contracted measles in the southern part of the Commonwealth back in February. These two were apparently not vaccinated and caught the virus while out of the country. Turns out the United States is not alone in dealing with measles this year. The measles outbreak is global. There are numerous cases of measles in Madagascar, Brazil, India, the Philippines, Ukraine, and Venezuela. Experts are saying that these countries have a particular problem with measles because the health infrastructures are poor, so they can't carry out thorough immunization programs. There's a lot of civil strife in those countries, and many of the parents there are choosing not to immunize their children. Before I replay our story, I could tell you another shocking thing related to measles. It just happened this week, actually. Two research universities in California... UCLA and California State University Los Angeles have put almost 700 students and staff under quarantine because they were potentially exposed to the measles virus. Measles virus is one of the most contagious diseases we know of, and these students and staff members had apparently not been vaccinated, and they were believed to have been exposed to the virus. For instance, there's a library that they thought was a possible source of exposure. These folks are being asked now to stay at home, Stay away from other people and contact health officials if they show any symptoms of measles. Oh boy, well listen to this story about measles that we originally played on February 18th, 2019. It's back! The measles! The measles were declared eliminated in the United States by the Federal Center for Disease Control, the CDC, back in the year 2000. They declared that at the time because there were no cases of disease transmission in the country of measles for a 12-month period prior to that. But it just so happened two years prior to 2000, back in 1998, another big thing happened. A paper was published in the English journal called Lancet that suggested there was a link between the MMR vaccine, MMR stands for measles, mumps, and rubella, and autism in children. It indicated that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism in children. Later, 10 of the 12 co-authors of this paper retracted the publication, and the journal itself retracted the article. There were questions about how the dozen subjects examined in the paper had been recruited. turned out that some were involved in a lawsuit, and the lawyer representing them paid for some of the research. The journal eventually retracted the article because of this and because the authors had not disclosed this possible bias at the time of publication. The primary author of this Lancet paper, Andrew Wakefield, was eventually banned from practicing medicine in Britain due to research misconduct. Publication of this article showing a link between the MMR vaccine and autism really resounded with the public. It really got a lot of media attention. And even though numerous subsequent papers on this topic have not found a link between the vaccine and autism, the damage had already been done. 
What's interesting is that if you look at this paper by Wakefield, he's actually not recommending that parents not immunize their children against measles. He was actually just saying that the three vaccines maybe shouldn't be taken at one time. They should be taken individually instead of all at once, which the MMR vaccine does. But some parents interpreted this as, up, don't get vaccinated at all. So parents heard the media reports about this and started to decide to forego the vaccine altogether. Vaccination rates started dropping after that, especially in the UK where rates dropped from 90% to 80%. That is well below the level that is thought to be required for herd immunity. This means that you need to have 92 to 94% immunization rates if you really want to prevent measles outbreaks from spreading widely. If you have immunization rates below that 92 to 94% of children level, the risk that non-immunized people contract the measles virus goes up significantly. This concept of herd immunity, basically they're saying that if a few people don't get vaccinated, they'll be okay because there's so many people around them that are vaccinated, the disease won't have a way to get a foothold on that population. But the magical number is from 6 to 8% of the population. If you have more than 6 to 8% of the population who don't get vaccinated, they're not protected by people who have been vaccinated. There's too many other people who have also not been vaccinated, and that gives a foothold for this disease to get into the population. While overall rates of measles vaccination in the United States haven't dropped as radically as in Britain, they have vacillated quite a bit since the publication of the Wakefield paper. The problem in the U.S. is that vaccination rates have dropped in specific locations. There are about a dozen places in the country where vaccination rates have been really low. Phoenix, Detroit, Asheville, North Carolina. And there are two more hot spots in Oregon, Seattle, and Portland. It's in Portland, Oregon, where the measles virus is taking its biggest toll this year. As of this writing, more than 50 people have contracted measles in the Portland area. The problem with measles is that it's caused by a virus that persists for a very long time in the environment. So even if a person walks into a room after they've contracted the disease, the virus lingers in the air in that room for two hours. So that potentially exposes a lot of people to that virus. So if someone who's not immunized walks into that room two hours after the infected person was in there, they breathe the same air, they might touch a surface that the infected person touched, and then bring their hands to their eyes or their nose or their mouth, and voila, they're infected. This scenario happens 90% of the time to someone who's not vaccinated. In Clark County, which is right next to Portland, Oregon, only 78% of the kids from kindergarten through high school have actually been vaccinated for measles. That's a very low number. Another issue with measles is that the incubation for the measles virus is two weeks, and the virus can spread from an infected person for four days before they show the typical measles rash. And so infected people can do a pretty good job of spreading the disease because they are spreading it before they even know they have it. So it'll be interesting to see if this tendency by parents to not fully vaccinate their children will continue in the future, or whether parents realize that the threat from the vaccination is not as great as the risk they put their children at of getting the disease. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, 
and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>